Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 for our message entitled, Living Out Your Salvation. Philippians chapter 2. And when you get there, you can follow along as I read verses 1 to 16 for the sake of context. And then our text for today is verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, verses 1 to 16. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in human appearance, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Last week, the last few weeks, we've been studying verses 1 to 11, and we've seen how Paul has walked through the mindset the motivations, the mindset, the method, and the model of unity in the church. Paul loves this church in Philippi, and he's aware that there are conflicts and divisions among them. And so he sets forth how Christians should pursue and preserve unity in the face of differences, the differences that exist among us. The crescendo of this passage really is verses... uh, 5 to 11, which is the model which we are to follow. It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're not just to do what he did, but we are to imitate his character, his mindset, the the way he thought. We are to be self-giving rather than self-seeking, just like Christ was self-giving. Because Jesus gave his life in obedience to the Father, and the Father 
observed that response, the father responded by assigning him the position and the title of Lord and placed him above all of creation in honor, authority, and glory. So now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for that day when the Father tells him it is time for him to come to uh, take his people unto himself and soon after establish his kingdom on the earth. As a result, as, as the text goes on to say of what Jesus did and as a result of the Father's response, all people everywhere are to respond by bowing the knee in submission to Christ and confessing, declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who do that in this life, who bow the knee to Christ, are forgiven of their sin and are granted eternal life. And those who do not bow the knee to Christ in this life will bow the knee when they stand before Christ in judgment. That's the note that we ended on last week, but that is not the end of the matter. The exaltation of Christ, as stirring as that is for our souls, is really not the main point that Paul is driving toward in this section. Just as the wedding is in many ways the emotional apex of a relationship, but it's only the beginning of a marriage, so bowing the knee and confessing Christ is just the beginning of a new life. It's right for us to be overwhelmed by the glory of Christ, who he is and what he's done. It's good to be awed by his humility and his sacrifice, especially knowing that it's a response to our own sin. And it's more than appropriate that we respond to the work of Christ by exalting him with our mouths and our hearts and even in other physical expressions of worship. But that elevated state of Uh, that we can be in during a worship service is not the state that we're intended to stay in. Uh, Put another way, the truth of the gospel and the lordship of Christ does not have as its final aim that we stay present before the king in the throne room on our knees. That's only the beginning. At some point, you have to get up off your knees and do something. You can't just bow the knee as a humble expression of submission. You have to stand up and leave the royal court and live a life of submission to the king. That's the point that Paul is making in verses 12 to 13. And you can look there at the text in verse 12. It begins with the words, so then, or in other translation, therefore. This is not the most typical word that we often find translated as therefore. The more common word is simply a conjunction that corresponds or relates to logical ideas together. In fact, we find the common word four times here in Philippians 2 itself. In verse 1, he starts out saying, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. In verse 23, he says, therefore, I hope to send him immediately. In verse 28, he says, therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly. And then verse 29, receive him then or therefore in the Lord. The word here in verse 12 is different in that it identifies the conclusion of what Paul has been saying. It's like saying, here's the takeaway. This is really what I'm getting at. If if you're not going to remember everything else, make sure that you remember this. So verses 12 to 13 are the conclusion of what Paul has been saying 
starting in verse 11. And then in verses 14 to 16, what he does is offer some specifics of what it looks like to apply the truth and principle of verses 12 to 13. Now, I want you to notice the tone of these two verses and following. I can't help but reading verses 9 to 11 about the exaltation of Christ in an elevated and intensified voice. The exaltation of Christ does not seem like something that you can just whisper about. But it's as though Paul is exalting Christ with his eyes lifted high and he's declaring the the necessary response that we bow the knee and declare that Christ is Lord. And then he looks out at the church if he were standing in Philippi. And he says, so then, my beloved, here's what I want you to know. Here's what's important in light of who Christ is and what he's done. Earlier in our study of Philippians, we've seen that Paul has a long history with the Philippians, long in terms of his overall ministry. He's known them for about 10 years. Uh, He has traveled to that church multiple times over the course of that 10 years, and they, in return, have supported Paul and his ministry more than any other church. So this is, uh, uh, Paul and the the church have an affection for one another. And, And what Paul is saying, and what he's about to say to them, is weighty. He's not joking around or talking about trivial matters. He's speaking sober truth to them. But he's not harsh or stern. His words are surrounded by loving affection. In fact, if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, uh, he goes even more in this vein to say, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved So there's no mistaking the disposition that Paul has for this church. His heart is full of affection for them, and it's on that basis that he speaks the truth in love, desiring to see that they walk in the Lord. Well, having affirmed his affection, note how else he prepares them for the command he's about to give. Look again at verse 12. He says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He wants them to know that with the command he's about to give them, he's not viewing them as disobedient children that need to be set straight. No, he's viewing them as a faithful people whom he is calling to persevere and and extend and elevate their faithfulness. You know, when Paul was with them, they were like the Thessalonians in that they received the word of God, not, not, as, it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the, the word of God. And so they listened well and they conformed to the teaching. They, they listened and, and submitted to this apostle sent by Christ. But we all know what it's like, right? When the boss goes away for a few days or the parents go on a weekend trip or there's a substitute teacher in the classroom. Even if our good behavior is sincere. When, when authority is not around, we have a tendency to relax a little bit, uh, to loosen up. The physical presence of someone we respect makes us to sit up straight and, and make sure that we're following the rules as, as we genuinely desire to do, and we want to honor them in any way that's appropriate. But then 
they leave and the pressure is off to be on our best behavior. And so the Apostle Paul knows the effect of his presence with this church that he loves so much. And so he urges them to take that same level of obedience and fervor that they had while he was with them and maintain it, if not increase it while he's away. That brings us to the command in verse 12. Again, this is the conclusion of verses 1 to 11. This is the destination that Paul has been driving toward. This is what the Holy Spirit wants you and me to know we must do in response to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Once we have bowed the knee and confessed Christ as Lord, this is the next step we take. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is one of those rare cases where it doesn't matter what English translation you're looking at, it's translated exactly the same way. Well, almost, with one exception, some translations say, work out your own salvation. And I'll see in a moment, that's perhaps the more accurate translation. The word, the verb work out there has various connotations. It means to do something, to produce something, to bring something about or to accomplish something. Uh, it, it can mean to perform or to carry something out. So there's two ways you can take this command. You can either take it in the sense of do something to bring about your salvation or do something with the salvation that you already have. The first sense would imply that whatever Jesus did, there is still more for us to do before we can be saved. And the second sense is that Christ has accomplished our salvation, and now there is work for us to do as a saved people. So, which one of those is correct? Are we to work to bring about our salvation? Or are we to work because we've been saved? Look in your ministries who puts out a semi-annual survey, kind of a state of theology is what they call it, to see what professing believers believe on various theological issues. They came out with this question to see what, how people would respond. Listen to this statement and see if you agree or disagree. God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Christ. Agree or disagree? God counts a person as righteous, not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Those of you who are in Pastor Dave's class should have this one down pat. According to the survey, 43% of professing Christians either strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, or are not sure. My friends, I hope that you would agree with that statement. Let me say it again, not as a statement on a survey, but as a declaration of truth. God counts a person as righteous, not on the basis of their works, but only on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ. 
If that's not crystal clear in your mind, you need to go online and listen to the last two weeks of Pastor Dave's Romans class. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You know, in addition to Scripture being so clear that salvation is by faith alone, excuse me, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, it would be impossible for you and I to contribute to whatever Jesus does to save us. You know, Scripture says that we are dead in our sin, that we have no fear of God, that we're blind and deaf and and dumb. So if Jesus took me to the doorstep of heaven all the way there and said, all right, Gabe, you have one step you need to take. Just take one step and you'll be saved. There's a problem because I'm blind and I can't see where I'm supposed to go. And I'm deaf, and so I I can't hear what he's telling me. And I'm dumb, so I can't speak to ask questions uh, and and discern what I'm supposed to do. And I'm dead. So I'm just a heaping pile there on the floor, and I can't do anything. So don't ever think that you can do anything to contribute to your salvation. Jesus has done it all. And so we need to make sure that our faith and our confidence is solely and completely on Christ. So when Paul says here in verse 12, work out your salvation, he cannot mean work for your salvation. The only right interpretation of what Paul means when he says work out your salvation is this. God saved you. He's given you the gift of life. He's freed you from guilt and condemnation and granted you eternal life. He's placed his spirit within you and adopted you into the family of God. He's freed you from slavery to sin and death. Now live. Take what God has given you and do something with it. In fact, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, after declaring that salvation is by grace through faith, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So he's given us a new heart to love the Lord. He's given us new eyes so that we can see reality for what it is. He's given us ears so that we can receive truth and wisdom. He's given us a mind to understand the truth. He's given us a mouth to speak the truth. He's given us hands so that we can serve and feet so that we could go. And in the Romans of, in the, in the words of Romans 6, 11 to 13, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And don't go on presenting your members of, the, of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So as those who've been raised from the dead and given life, to work out your salvation means to live out what we've been given. 
I noted earlier that some translations say, work out your own salvation. That's more accurate because the, the pronoun is not a relative pronoun, just your, but a reflexive pronoun, your own. And so it should be your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. This is important for us because even though the work of Christ was the same for all of us, he lived one righteous life, he died one death and rose from the dead once for all. All of that is singular and the same for everyone, but the experience of salvation is different for everyone. Here's what I mean. We all have our own lives of sin and suffering that we've been saved out of. We all have our own context of life that we're living in. Uh, We all have our own personal battles with sin and difficulties. We all have our own weaknesses that need to be dealt with. And though all believers have the same Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit has his own unique purposes and plans for how he plans to work in the life uh, of each person. This is, by the way, why we need to have so much patience with one another, because We're all in different places in regard to our spiritual growth. So we have to work out our salvation according to the context of our life and what God has placed before us. I think that's what he means when he says, work out your own salvation. That's going to look different, not because the truth is different, but because the context of your life is different. If you've ever participated in a large race with hundreds or thousands of people, you know that not everybody starts the race at the same time. Everybody starts at the starting line, but they might get to to the starting line at a different point, depending on how many people there are. And then after they cross that starting line, everybody runs or walks according to their ability and their purpose. And so in the same way, the race of faith is the same in that we all start at the starting point, salvation, whenever the Spirit chooses to work that in any person's life. And the finish line is the same, entrance into heaven, but the experience of the race is different even while we're all headed the same direction. The biblical term for uh, the race of life or working out your salvation is sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification means to become holy, and it refers to the process by which sin is increasingly removed from us, and we are increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. Again, sanctification is really the one word equivalent to work out your own salvation. A sanctified life is a life that progressively lives out the implications of salvation. Now, this is not an option for Christians. If you've been saved, this is the only kind of life that we are to live. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6 again, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? There's no option there. Or verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, may it never be, he says. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as slaves uh, for, uh, 
when you present yourself as slaves to someone for obedience, you are slaves for, to the one whom you obey, either to sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And then he goes on in verse 20 and says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which, of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And then he says this, in verse 23, and you can say it with me if you know it, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we've been set free from sin. And Paul says, we are not to live in sin anymore, presenting ourselves to it as though we were slaves. So this is the takeaway in light of who Christ is, and what he's done, live out the salvation that Christ has accomplished for you. Live a life that is progressively being conformed to Christ, where you hate sin more and more, and you love Christ and the things that Christ loves more and more. Now look at the end of verse 12 to see what our disposition should be as we do this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The words fear and trembling are not to be understood individually because this is an idiomatic phrase. It's like when we say, oh, man, that thing costs an arm and a leg. We're, we're not referring to what an arm and a leg is. We're just making an, an expression of how something is expensive. And so in the same way, the phrase fear and trembling does not refer to the specific meaning of each individual word. In fact, it's used several other times in the New Testament, and it never means to be horrified or something like we would expect if we just took those words individually. Think about how Paul uses this phrase in 1 Corinthians 2. Just listen, and I'll read verses 1 to 5 so you kind of get the big picture as to what Paul is talking about. He says, When I came to you, Corinthians... I didn't come in superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. When Paul was preaching to the Corinthians for the first time as he made his way into Corinth in Acts chapter 18, he preached first to Jews and then to Gentiles. Both of those groups in other cities had tried to kill him. So he had no misconceptions that he was going to walk into town and be readily embraced and believed by the Corinthians who were pagans to the core. In fact, Paul actually did struggle with fear when he was in Corinth to the point where God had to step in and encourage Paul. After the first conversions in the city, the Lord came to Paul in Acts 18 verses 9 and 10 and said, Do not be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So when Paul says... 
in writing to the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We could take that quite literally, but I would submit to you that while that may have a a semblance of, of what he means there, that can't be all of what he meant. And the reason is this, what Paul is expressing in 1 Corinthians 2 is not his personal disposition and how he felt as he was conducting his ministry. What he is expressing is how he conducted himself among them. And that was with no bravado, with no self-confidence, with no trust in human wisdom or manipulative tactics, that he, he didn't preach the gospel by sidestepping the offense of the cross. Rather, he came to, that, to them as a man who had nothing to offer but the simple truth of Christ and him crucified. He entered the city with a mission to proclaim news of eternal consequence. And so he conducted himself soberly, seriously, circumspectly, and with a level of fervor that's warranted by the truth that he was there to proclaim. So coming back to Philippians 2 verse 12, those terms I've just used are apt descriptions of how we ought to work out our salvation. We should live out our salvation soberly, seriously, circumspectly, and with a degree of fervor. Now maybe some of you have grown up in churches where all the Christians looked angry all the time. That's not what we're talking about. As this letter keeps reminding us, we, the, the Christian life ought to be defined by joy and rejoicing. But listen, Paul has just reminded us of the extent to which Christ went to save us. He gave up the glories of heaven to come to this earth to live a life that you and I could not live and to die a death that, that we deserve. And Jesus calls us now to pick up our cross and follow him. His model of self-giving sacrifice, his example of humility, cut the path for us to follow. And it's a path of self-denial and self-mortification. And however you feel about that right now, it's a very different feeling when that hostile email comes in. Or when you're standing in front of that angry person. Or you're laying in bed thinking about that painful situation. Everything in you wants to resist that thought that the Spirit places in your mind. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. We come up with reasons why we say, Lord... This is not one of those situations where I'm supposed to die to myself. But the Spirit pushes back and says, die to yourself. Die to yourself. Turn back a few pages to Galatians chapter 5 to see how this dynamic works out. In Galatians chapter 5, just a few pages back before Ephesians, Paul says, starting in verse 14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Fearing and trembling, working out our salvation intentionally and purposefully and seriously is needed because there is a war going on in our souls. A war that exists because we've been saved by Christ, but our flesh does not want to submit to another master. It's a fierce spiritual battle that in many ways is going on all the time, but it flares up when temptations uh, come in front of you or when there's conflict in, in your life. And friends, the worst thing that we can do, which tragically is what we most often do, is live as if there's no battle going on at all. We live nonchalant, just going casually about our day, unconcerned about the spiritual battles that are around every corner. We go on about our life, and whenever temptation jumps in front of us or conflict erupts, we're shocked and surprised and unprepared. How could this happen? And so our default response kicks in because we're not ready. And those are usually according to the flesh. In fact, look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. If one or more of those characterize your life, either in general or in those difficult moments, you can be certain that you are not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, if you're in that situation, you are blind and short-sighted, having forgotten your purification from your former sins. On the other hand, if we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, living by the Spirit with intentionality and purpose, when if we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, if we're sitting under the teaching of God's Word and surrounding ourselves with people who strengthen our souls and hold us accountable, if we take an honest assessment of our hearts and what are the propensities of our souls and, and we're sensitive about the things that tempt us, we will begin to spring forth the fruit of of the Spirit. Look at verse 22. The uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If those are what come out of you in difficult moments, then you can be certain that by God's grace, you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. We should work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not only because of the spiritual battle inside of us, but also a second reason is because each one of us will stand before God in judgment and give an account. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one will be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. This judgment of believers is not to determine who is saved, but it is to give an account for how we have stewarded the salvation that has been given to us by God. And as the parable of the talents tell us, we will be rewarded according to how we stewarded our salvation. There's a very real sense in which how we live this life 
shapes our experience of eternity. So believer, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because there is a fierce battle going on within you and you need to be intentional and purposeful in that fight. And also work out your salvation with fear and trembling because eternity is at stake, not whether or not you'll be in heaven and on the new earth if you're a believer, but what your experience will be forever. Exert yourself to grow in the knowledge of God so that the life of God becomes increasingly manifested in you and aim to walk in a manner that's consistent with the salvation that you have received. Now, if you're sitting there and you feel weighed down by this task that seems impossible to work out my salvation, I have good news for you. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I've given you two reasons for why you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, the spiritual battle within you and the impact of e- on eternity. But here, Paul gives us a powerful motivation for working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that is this. Don't think that God saves you and, and just left you to yourself to live your life. No, God is the one who is at work in you, whose power is flowing through your life to give you both the desire and the ability to work for him, to live for him. So we're not left to ourselves. God himself infuses us with power, with strength, and with the desire to live for him. The New American Standard and the ESV help us in this passage by using the word work consistently in verses 12 and 13. Uh, You are to work out your salvation because God is at work in you so that you would work. The, The Greek word here is energeo, from which we get energy. And two important theological terms you should be aware of is or are monergism and synergism. Monergism means one person working. Synergism means two people working. The Bible teaches a monergistic salvation, meaning God alone accomplishes salvation. And the Bible teaches synergistic sanctification. We are working out what God is working in. Again, we are not left to ourselves to grow and live this life on our own. Nor is, God, is it totally up to God to grow us uh, without our effort. Rather, we cooperate with God as he grants us the desire to live for him, which we didn't have before we were saved. And he gives us the ability to live for him, which we did not have before we were saved. This is the Spirit's work in our life. Really, by virtue of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we are amply supplied to work out our salvation. The Spirit is not a tool that we pick up and use, but a person who is alive and active. He's teaching and guiding and convicting and encouraging and comforting and empowering and motivating us in this life. 
But the two particular things, as you can see, that Paul mentions of what the Spirit produces in us are will and work, desire and ability. If you ever have the desire to do what is right and honor the Lord, that's the Lord giving you that desire. If you ever do what is right and honor the Lord, that is God giving you the ability to do that. This is why Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's this mysterious union where, yes, I live, but I cannot claim to be the source of life and strength. That comes from Christ whose life empowers me. That's why Paul prays in Colossians 1.9 that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How are we supposed to do all of that? Strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Working out our salvation can only be done in the power of God, and He freely gives it to us if we ask and we walk by faith. Now, why does God do this work in us? Look at the end of verse 13. For His good pleasure. There are passages that say that we are to live a life that's pleasing to Him, like 1 Corinthians 5.9, which I read earlier. But Paul here is saying that God works in us for his good pleasure. Uh, The preposition for means for the sake of. So you could say God works in us for the sake of his good pleasure. Another example of this is Ephesians 1.5, which conveys the same idea. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of, of his will. That's the word there. Kind intention is the same as good pleasure in our text. Here's the point as stated by one commentator, Gordon Fee. God does this for his people precisely because it pleases him to do so. And all that God does, he does for his pleasure. But since God is wholly good, His doing what pleases him is not capricious, but what is wholly good for those he loves. Goes on to say, God's pleasure is pure love. So what he does for the sake of his good pleasure is by that very fact also on behalf of those he loves. After all, it delights God to delight his people. So don't ever think, beloved, that you need to work out your salvation to try to keep or make God happy with you. If you serve in the church and exhaust yourself in your life because you think you need to change God's disposition of you, moving away from a smile and or from a frown, and maybe he'll smile at me someday, you have a wrong view of God and a misunderstanding of the gospel. Understand that because of Christ's finished work, the Father delights in you 
And he delights to work in you so that you can live as a trophy and a reflector of his grace and his love. You know, what distinguishes Christians from everybody else in the world is not that Christians have a ticket in their pocket to heaven. Or certainly not that they are better than everyone else. But rather that we live out the implications of the fact that we have been given new life. We have been redeemed from slavery and we have been empowered by God himself. So there ought to be a difference between you and the unbelievers in your life. But that difference is not found in you. It's found in the fact that God is working in and through you. Your role and my role is to cooperate with his work and joyfully work out what he is working in. I want to close with two points of application First, one of the blessings of being part of Hope Bible Church is that we have all kinds of avenues for a person to grow in Christ, to work out their salvation. We have growing disciples classes, small groups, men's and women's ministries, student ministries, discipleship training, leadership training, and, and so many more things. It would be impossible for one person to do everything, but if you're not doing ev- anything, if you're not doing anything, I would encourage you to consider taking a step and perhaps joining one of our Sunday morning classes or joining a small group and moving forward to working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and especially in the context of the community of faith here at Hope Bible Church. A second application of how we can continue to work out our salvation is to recognize that sin is rampant in the church just like sickness is rampant in a hospital. You know, Christians play this funny game where we all come here because we know we're sinners, or at least I hope that's why you're here. But we do everything we can to hide the fact that we are sinners. This is not just a place to acknowledge our sin and our struggles. This is the place to get help for our sin and our struggles. Now, you can do that informally by talking to a a friend, a brother or sister in Christ who can minister to you and encourage you and direct you in in what God's Word might have to say about your challenge. Or you can do it formally by receiving biblical counseling and taking advantage of the people who've been trained and equipped for ministering to people who are battling sin or suffering. This is why we have grief share so regularly because there's always people dying and always people grieving and we want to we want to offer an opportunity for people to work through their grief and and, and uh, be encouraged and have hope. In January we're going to be starting a, a group study of for men who are struggling with sexual sin and so you could be looking out for details about that in the weeks to come. And as the Lord provides us, we have more leaders and more people being equipped. We want to do everything we can to meet the needs, the struggles and challenges that that exist in our church and even outside our church so that we can point people to Christ and help them work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So don't sit back and just think, well, I can just do this on my own. I can take it. I can manage it. That's not how God designed us to live. He designed us to live together and to love one another through these things. Well, finally, remember this. Philippians 1.6, some of you have been waiting for this. 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If you are trusting in Christ Christ and seeking to live for him by his strength, he will continue that work and bring it to completion when you see the Lord face to face. Let's pray. And as I pray, the men can come for the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this word. Because of our sin, we can kind of be blind to verse 13 and think that you um, are like an overbearing father who just places unreasonable demands on us. But what a joy it is to have verse 13 and to know that you are active in our life, that you are empowering us by your spirit, that you are working according to your kindness and your good pleasure. So Lord, help us to live in cooperation with you, to walk by the spirit, to put off the deeds of the flesh, to renew our minds and and put on righteousness so that we would be a people who show whose we are, that we would put on display the transforming power of the gospel, and that all of that would put glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. So may you receive our lives of worship and work in us for your sake, we pray. Amen.